Lord, we just thank for this time that we can have to study your word and to look at what you would want us to learn from this and that you care and you protect us as you have promised in this chapter. And we just thank you. Guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 33. This uh, chapter is attributed to prophecies about Assyria and Sennacherib, who was the general of the Syrian, uh, Assyrian army. And he was, in the, he was attacking Judah and uh, surround, he, he surrounded Jerusalem and was going to take it. And then Hezekiah uh, prayed for deliverance and God killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night with one angel. So that's this time period that we're talking about. So we look at this as we get into this, chapter 33, verse 1. Woe to you that spoils and you have not spoiled you and deal treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with you. When you shall cease to spoil, you shall be spoiled, and when you shall make an end to, the, to deal treachery, treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with you. O Lord, be gracious unto us. We have waited for you. Be you their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people fled. At the lifting up of yourself, the nations were scattered. And your spoil shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar, as the running to and fro of locusts shall he run upon them. That the Lord, uh, the Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high, and he has filled Zion with his judgment and righteousness. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of your times, and strength of, your, of, of salvation, the fear of the Lord, is treasure. Behold, their valiant come, one shall cry without, the ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly, the highway lay, lay waste, and the wayfaring men cease. He has broken the covenant, he has despised the cities, he regarded no man. The earth mourns and languishes, Lebanon is ashamed and hewn down. Sharon is like a wilderness. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. All right. So here we see a pronouncement of woe to the one that spoils. And as I said, the one that, that most people believe that they're talking about is Shennacherib. Uh, and he was the general of Assyria. He was the one that did all the conquering for the king. And he is going to be the one that's going to give them trouble and he spoiled and he had this habit of leaving nothing behind he was one who left nothing uh, when he got done with you you uh, had nothing left so oftentimes people would sue for peace if they if they would listen to the ambassadors which often they wouldn't uh, because he was so sure of himself and his army that they were he believed themselves to be undefeatable and many of these great leaders and generals of those days and even semi-recently have thought that they were undefeatable. We look at people like Napoleon and Hitler, they all thought they were undefeatable and they all met their, met their end eventually. Alexander considered himself undefeatable and you know it's kind of a bizarre story because if you know his story he lost a lot of battles but he kept he would keep coming back and until he won until he would win. So he never totally lost his, 
lost his battles. And he says, you have, you have not spoiled and, and you have not spoiled and dealt treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with you. And when you shall cease to spoil, you shall be spoiled, and when you shall make an end to, the deal, to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with you. This is kind of a very hard sentence to understand, but basically he's saying that the one who spoils, and this is the world's way of looking at it, when you spoil and you stop spoiling, you're setting yourself up for being destroyed. And that's the way a lot of people think. Well, if I don't lie first, they're going to lie to me. If I don't take advantage of them first, they're going to take advantage of me. It's a very negative way to, to look at the world, but unfortunately, much of the lost world operates in those terms. You know, if I don't, if I don't cheat them first, they're going to they're take advantage of me, and this is what he's saying. You're, you're doing this. You're spoiling these people. You're making bad deals. He would make deals and then break them over and over again, and he would make a peace pact with people and then you know, leave them alone for, for a very short period of time and then come and conquer them anyway while their defenses were down. He was not a nice man. <laughs> and God used him to bring judgment upon the, upon the children of uh, Israel. But God did not approve of his ways. He just used his ways. And this is one of the things we th need to keep in mind. So often the Bible tells us that things were done and it doesn't necessarily approve of the way things get done. It just says this is what was done. And God sometimes uses those things. It, how, how do we know that all things work together for good? Because God uses those events to work them out for good. It doesn't mean that the means that were good and it doesn't mean that the ends justify the means, which we hear a lot of people. Well, as long as I get to where I wanted to be, it doesn't matter how I get there, is not a valid way to live. All right, we see that that happens, that God turns bad into good, but that is just him taking his sovereignty over man's self-will to do wrong. Okay, and we've seen this in our lives many times where we choose to do wrong in our own lives and God turns it to good. Doesn't mean it was the best way. Doesn't mean it was the way that God wanted it to go even. You know, his way would have been to say, I'd like you to do it my way. And believe me, many of my counseling sessions are trying to get somebody to admit, number one, that they did it wrong and then try to help them bring everything back to God. The hardest thing to, in the world is to figure out how it, you're going to get yourself back on the right footing when you disobey God so often that you've got all kinds of consequences for those mistakes and it's hard to come back and live under God's way of doing things when you've made a lot of mistakes. You know, uh, and we all make those mistakes. We all have made lots of mistakes. Some are more serious than others. Uh, when you're counseling somebody who's had you know, kids by you know, three or four men or three or four women and they've got kids all over the place and you're going, okay, now you gotta take responsibility for this. It's like, well, which one? All of them. Well, how do I do that? That's your problem, you know, now that you have to maintain three, four households, you know, you've got a problem. And it is a problem. And if we did it God's way, it would be a much easier way to solve our problems because we wouldn't have had the problem in the first, we'd have a whole other set of problems we wouldn't have those big problems. And some of those are really big problems to deal with. And it's hard enough to support a family without trying to support two or three families. And that's one of the biggest things that I have to talk to people about sometimes. Well, how do I do this? Uh, you've got your hands full. It's going to take a lot of sacrifices. But all of our sins have consequences that have to be dealt with. Some are really hard consequences. 
Some are fairly minor, just irritation or, or a problem. Others are very severe and hard to reconcile, and it makes things hard to live by sometimes. And those are the ones we pray that God will give us grace and take away the consequences maybe for. But he usually doesn't. And I keep, keep that on, on our forefront of our minds. Oftentimes, he does not forget, let go of the consequences. He wants us to remember. And he will not allow that. And it says, O Lord, be gracious unto us. We have waited for you. Be you their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. And this is a beautiful prayer that Isaiah is making. God, we be gracious, number one. And this idea of gracious, have mercy on us. For we have waited. And I love this, this in the Hebrew. This means we have looked eagerly for you. you know, is that the way most of us wait for God sometimes? You know, probably not in many cases. It's like, okay, God, I'm waiting. And while I'm waiting, I'm going to go do a bunch of things. <laughs> I'm going to try to fix it myself, God, if, because I think you're too slow. That's usually our way of waiting for God. God, uh, I asked you yesterday, and the answer hasn't come, so now I've got to jump on it and figure out how to, how to make this happen. And God is saying, wait. Wait patiently. And, and you know, we all laugh at that because we've all done it. I've done it many times. God, I need this to happen. And, oh, it's not happened yet? Okay, how can I make this happen? And we can justify it. And, you know, and it really is a tough thing because God is not expecting us to sit around and do nothing. And yet he doesn't want us to presume and do things outside of his will. And it's a tough thing to listen to his word and know when to wait and when to move forward. But I would recommend that we all learn how to give God a little bit of time to work. <laughs> you know, God, I, I need uh, this bill paid in five days. And usually, I told you many times, God will wait till day five to pay the bill or provide the money. to the. And we're looking on day four, God, you didn't answer my prayer for this money, so now I've got to go find a way to get it. And it's not a bad deal if you plan on working to get it, but if you plan on trying to deceive, cheat, borrow, beg, steal, you need to wait for God, and he'll provide. And so we, say, we waited for him, and he says, you be our arm or our strength every morning. This is why I should teach us, you know, we need to go before God in the morning. You know, we need to know what he wants us to do. We read the word in the morning, and usually it's exactly what we need for that day. We need to go and ask him for strength in the morning. All through the Psalms, David says, early in the morning, I will rise up and seek you. Early in the morning. Okay. Now, I heard people that say, well, I just don't have time in the morning. Well, you probably have time to read the newspaper or watch the news on television or make breakfast or you know, who knows what else you've done. You make time for what you think is important. Most people, morning is their best time. Uh, because inevitably, if you say, well, I just want to do this at night before I go to bed. I, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. You know, back in the early days when I said, you know, and then I tried that, I almost inevitably fell asleep or I was just so tired I couldn't, I would read three or four paragraphs and go, okay, what did I just read? <laughs> and it, it meant nothing. So I very highly recommend, you know, if there's any way at all, do it in the morning. Uh, that's, if you do it both, that's even better. But I mean, if you're only going to pick one, morning's usually quieter. It's not as hectic. You're not as frazzled. You know, if you wait all day, you'll be frazzled. You'll be, it's hard to concentrate. You're tired. Uh, 
and oftentimes you won't do it in the evening either. You find all kinds of reasons not to do it in the evening. Your, your kids have sporting events, you've got this meeting to go to, you've got that meeting to go to. I just had to watch my three shows on television that I just can't miss. Uh, you know, so by the time I got done with that, it was 12 o'clock at night and I was just too tired to do it. Gotten up before everybody else got up so I could do my study. It's nice not having anybody at home anymore. I can do it whenever I want, which is still mostly in the morning because that's just the habit that I've developed. So. And when you focus on God from the beginning, your days usually will go a whole lot better because now you're putting God in the middle of your day. Uh, my worst days are when I'm so, I get up late or I got busy and forget to, you know, forget or don't make time to, to do my prayers and Bible study and those days get to be miserable. And then he goes, not only is he our strength in the morning, he's our salvation in the time of trouble. This is that whole idea. If God is in the center of our life, Accomplished. Other times he's just sitting back and saying, watch, watch me at work. And you go through the scriptures and you see both times. Uh, Hezekiah was told, just relax, I'll, I'll take care of this problem. And an angel killed all of his, all of his uh, enemies. Jehoshaphat was told to march out to meet the enemy in the valley. And he was told to send the priest with the Ark of the Covenant and the singers before the army. Now, how would you have liked to have been the priest or the singers in that battle? <laughs> it's a great one if you trust God, you know. But it would be, that would have been a nerve-wracking thing. We, we're going into battle and you're sending us first. And the enemy scattered. They, they, they were in great fear and they scattered, you know. But what does God do? Sometimes he'll tell you to go out and work hard. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to be ready to listen to God and do it his way. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. And this is so perfect for us to understand that you know, we're to walk by faith. The just shall walk by faith is mentioned four times in the scriptures. And God says, I just want you to walk by faith. That means if he says, be still and be silent, we're to be still and be silent. If we're to go out and do something, we go out and do something. The good news is, even when we do it wrong, God will, God will work good out of it. It'll be hard on us. It'll be hard on others or that we love and care for. But he will work on it. He is our salvation. And the more we can rest in that, the better off we are. We just get by in faith rest. God, you're in control, and you're, you're one directing. And it is amazing how he will direct and how things will open up. And when he moves, it'll be very clear that he's moving. You know, it's an, an amazing thing. You know, I think about Daniel when Cyrus makes a decree that nobody is to go and pray to any other god for 30 days other than, other than the king, very first thing Daniel does after he hears that decree is he goes back to his room and he prays like he always did. Why? Because he knew that God was his salvation. And then, uh, excuse me, not Cyrus, Darius. Darius realized that he was tricked, that he was tricked by his leaders to have to punish Daniel. And you know, and he comes out at that next morning and goes, Daniel, is your God that you serve completely protected you? And he says, yes, he has, and that he had a great night with the lions. <laughs> and uh, he was rescued out, and, they, and the king took all the people that tricked him and threw them and their families. The sin always has this problem that it includes other people than the one that sins. He took all those leaders that tricked him and took their families and threw them in, and it says they didn't even hit the ground before they were torn to pieces. So the lions were very hungry after a night without having a feast on Daniel. But you know, do we have that much trust to say, God, I'm going to trust you no matter what. And no matter what, I'm going to trust you. It's hard. 
and it's hard to do all the time. None of us do it all the time. Some days, I have Some days better than others, yes. <laughs> but he is our salvation. And we need to really, not just our salvation to get into heaven. That's a given when we accept Jesus Christ as our savior, we get to go to heaven. But he is our savior on our day-to-day -day walk if we will just sit back and trust. And it's hard. It's hard to sit back and trust oftentimes. All right, verse 3. At the noise of the tumult, the people fled. At the lifting up of themselves, the nations were scattered. And your spoils shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar as the running to and fro of the locusts. He shall run upon them. And here is God saying, at the noise of the tumult. He sends in this noise, and Sennacherib and his army was killed. And they ran. And if we read in... in uh, Second Kings and Second Chronicles, you can read about this battle. You know, not much of a battle, but in, in one of them, it, they didn't know. They woke up. They didn't know. There was a group of lepers that wandered around. The, you know, said, well, why stay in the city? We're going to be dead anyway. Let's go, let's go out and, and take, our, take what we get. We'll, you know, we're lepers. Maybe they'll let us live. And they found everything empty. They started you know, taking some of the spoil. And then, then their conscience smote them. And they went back to the city and told them, you know, hey, everybody's dead. And just before that, it said that a uh, donkey's head was selling for some astronomical number that I don't remember, but it was expensive just to buy a, the head of a donkey. And dung, people were buying dung to, to eat you know, because they were just starving to death. And they walked out of the city, and there's this feast. And it took them a long time to gather. I believe it was three days off the top of my head to gather the spoil from 185,000 soldiers killed and all the supplies that it, to feed them. And it says, you know, the spoil shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar. Uh, and, you know, we think about that. If you know how destructive caterpillars can be, if you're a gardener or anything, a caterpillar in your garden is not what you want. Uh, they eat everything. And then he goes, and if that wasn't bad enough, the running to and fro of locusts. Uh, I've only seen a small swarm of locusts. I've never seen some of the locust swarms that these, these have talked about. I mean, I've... I've only seen several thousand, and you know, there's, and they can blacken the sky, in and everything, but a lot of times, especially in the Middle East, they would have swarms that just you couldn't go anywhere without locusts. And he's saying to gather this spoil will be just like the locusts, just swarming upon it, and leaving nothing. And that's really what these hungry people of Israel did. They swarmed on that, on that. It took them three days to gather up the entire spoil. That's a lot of spoil, a lot of, a, lot of, a lot of reward for God doing the work. And that's the good news. When God gives us the victory and does the work for us, we get the rewards. And, you know, and I, I really love that about God. Just let me do the work, and I'm going to give you the reward. I've went, I went to the cross and died for your sins so that you could have the reward of heaven. He does, he does our battles, and then he gives us the spoil from those battles. He, he gives us the opportunities to look like we're doing something stupid for him, and he says, here's your reward, which is always great. He walks us through the world and gives us peace that passes understanding and joy and, and happiness that is just so far beyond anything the world says, and he gives it to us. You know, what is the world trying to do? The world really wants to have other people do the work and get the money, and yet that's exactly what God does for us when we relax in him. It's what the world wants to accomplish and cannot give us without God is what God gives us.
you know, if they would just learn to trust in God. And I understand it, it's tough because as human beings, we always have this idea of what have you done for me lately? And we apply that to God as well, which is sad. We shouldn't, but we tend to. God, I have forgotten what you've done yesterday, last week, uh, last year, you know, 10 years ago, whatever it might be, and apply our very unappreciative attitude toward God so often. Children of Israel did it so often. God, deliver us from these Egyptians. What did you put us out here in the middle of the desert for so we can starve and die of thirst and, and, and not have enough food? Oh, you gave us manna. God, we're tired and sick and tired of this manna that you rain down on us every night. Over and over again, blessing after blessing, and they would murmur and complain about every blessing that God gave them. Over and over again. We're no better. In many cases, we're no better. You know, I hear so many people, well, if I was back then, I wouldn't be like them. Yes, you would. <laughs> You're human. They were human. You'd be just like them. Maybe not quite as bad, you know, possibly, but you'd been just like them. We'd all have been like them. You know, especially when... You're sitting in a group, and this person starts complaining. What do we do when somebody starts complaining? Do we say, you know, I don't need that negativity, you know, take it, take it somewhere else? No, it's usually, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. I understand that. And it sets off a negative mood in us. And before long, an entire group is made negative because one person is busy complaining about everything that's going on. And it's easy. It's our sin nature. Our sin nature oftentimes and most oftentimes wants to look at the negative about every situation. And we can make ourselves miserable. Have you ever made yourself miserable thinking about all the bad things that have been going on? You, you come in in a real happy mood and all of a sudden you start thinking about all, oh, man, this isn't going right and this isn't going right and the next thing you know, you're just a miserable wreck. I can work the other way and I'm not using even positive or negative thinking. It just, when we start thinking about God and what he's doing, it is a, we see the blessings. That's why I love the song, Count Your Blessings. Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done, because when we start looking at the positive sides of things, we're going, oh yeah, God has done a lot. He's done this, he's done this. He's, wow, God, you're amazing. And we start looking at that, and it really changes the way we can look at every situation. People look at, well, aren't you terrible and miserable with everything going on? No, God's blessed me with this, that, and the other thing, and... And, we be, and we're able to lift him up and praise him. And the, and the world looks at us and says, boy, you're a nut. You know, you're, not, you're not looking at all the bad stuff that's going on. And you go, nope, God is good. God is good all the time. You know, and we've got to keep that in mind. God has a good plan for us. No matter what seems to be happening, he has a good plan. And he's saying, just pay attention to me. Pay attention to my plan. Be ready to give him praise. And he oftentimes will make it wait till the last moment so that we have to be dependent upon him. And he's saying, are you going to depend on me or are you going to take it into your own hands? And if we want to take it into our own hands, he'll say, fine, I'll step back and let you take it into your own hands. You want to defend yourself from the attacks of, that's going on? He'll say, fine, you defend yourself from the attacks. If we relax in God, he defends us. And I've heard a lot of pastors talking about this on the radio this last uh, week and a half or so that they have learned over time to let God defend them when people attack them. And it looks strange to the world. Well, you're just letting them do that. Well, you know what? My God is very strong, and he knows how to defend me a whole lot better than I know how to defend myself. He won't make the mistakes. He'll do whatever it takes to defend me. 
And I've learned that over the years and pretty much allow him to defend me. Because I don't want to get involved with it. Because number one, the first thing you do, as soon as you start to defend yourself, everybody will say, aha, see, there's, where there's smoke, there's fire. You're defending yourself. We must, have, we must have hit a nerve. And when you defend yourself, everybody goes, oh, we, there must be something there. And then they really start to dig into, into things and make life miserable. It's better off just letting God defend. And believe me, he will. He will defend. Verse 5, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. God is exalted and will always be exalted. Now, this is something that's very important for us to understand. Truth is always true no matter what. Whether people believe it or not does not change the fact that something is true. All right? Uh, if you say, I don't believe in gravity, and you go jump off the cliff, I can guarantee you just because you don't believe in it, you are not going to stand on the air on the edge of the cliff. That only happens in cartoons when somebody's running along, and then, then they realize where they are, and they fall, because gravity, even in the cartoons, works. Uh, but, you know, we see truth is always true, and lies are always a lie no matter how many people believe them. And we see this in our world. We have lies that are being perpetuated all the time and are being screamed and hollered by large majorities of people, but they are still lies. And we've got to keep this in mind. God is always exalted. His truth is always exalted, and, and righteousness is always exalted in the long run. The, in the long run, truth and righteousness always wins out. It may take a long time. It may look like evil is triumphing, but in the end, truth always triumphs. Excuse me, a lie is triumphing, but in the long run, truth always triumphs. Always. And we see this even in books and movies and stories. Nowadays, there's people that are trying to write books and do movies where good is defeated by the end of the movie. Nobody is ever satisfied by that story, by that book, because internally we know that it is wrong for evil to triumph. Because the ultimate story is God creating man, man falling, him redeeming us and rewarding us in heaven. That's the ultimate story. And that is the big story that God is going to put out there. And all stories have to match his story. All of them. If they don't, there's just something not right. And I've read a couple books where the good, good lost, and I'm going, what a boring book. This, it, it didn't, it didn't, won't hold all the way through, but it's, the conclusion was wrong, and you just knew it was wrong. And those type of stories, those kind of books, ultimately don't really do well. Because everybody goes, I know, it's just, it wasn't right. Because inside we know right must triumph, or this world is totally worthless. And our world is trying to tell us it's worthless, but that's what evolution is all about. That's what all the, this thing is. Well, there's no God. It's all just whatever. But internally, we know certain things. We know right from wrong. We know, we know that good has to win. That's not something that evolution could produce. And this is why it says, God will be exalted, for he dwells on high. He, he's there. He's above everything. And he says, he has filled Zion, and remember Zion is Jerusalem, poetic name for Jerusalem, with judgment and righteousness. 
And in this particular case, Hezekiah was a good king. He was a righteous king. He went to God whenever he had trouble, we find him praying. Not that we have a whole lot about him, but he, every time he had it, he was on his knees praying. And it's quite a to look at him. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of your times and strength of salvation, and the fear of the Lord is his treasure. This is quite a verse I'm thinking of. You know, wisdom and truth is our stability. You want to live a stable life? Base it on God's word and his truth. It'll be stable. When we build our life on the rock of Jesus Christ, on the rock of the word of God, we have stability. When the storms come along, we're not shaken. You know, we, may be, we may feel the wind. I mean, it's, it's one thing to sit in the wind, and even in a place like this, you'll hear the wind howl, you'll, you'll, you'll feel things. But ultimately, it doesn't crash around us because it is a stable foundation. And knowledge and wisdom are that stability and, and the strength of our salvation. And then it says, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. The idea of fearing God you know, is so important. The fear of God. We, in our day and age, we're trying to push back. Don't, don't talk about fearing God. But you know, this fear is really the picture of a fear. And again, it's a place that nobody knows about hardly in this day and age. But let's go back to the 40s and 50s when, when it was mom saying, you just wait till your father gets home. You know, uh, you loved your father, you, you, you knew your father loved you, but he was also the disciplinarian, and you sometimes would have that, there was an edge of fear. Why would, did you have the fear? Well, because he could punish you. He could take away your privileges. He could, he could spank you, whatever, whatever, but you had an awe and a fear. And we've lost that awe and fear of God. And it's kind of funny, I was listening to a pastor today talk about the verses on the fear of God. You know, and I may do a series on this at some point myself because we look at the fear of God and how much blessings and promises are attached to the fear of God. You know, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God, the Lord is strength. The fear of God is blessing. You know, over and over he says, if you're fearing him, you're going to be blessed. Now why would we? Well, if you're fearing God, you're not going to want to violate his rules. And by not violating his rules, we go back to the very first part of this sentence. Wisdom and knowledge are stability. If I'm obeying God, I'm going to have a stronger, stabler life. If I am disobeying God, I'm always waiting to be caught, whether by God or by others. One of the things we tell the prisoners, you know, that I've told the prisoners and others have told the prisoners, you know, you want to live a good life when you get out because you, you don't want to be looking over your shoulder. Because, well, I can make lots of money, you know, going back to selling my drugs. I'm going, yeah, and you're going to have a miserable life, always nervous, that, you know, that the next person you talk to is a narc, that the police are on the corner, that, and you're going to go back to prison. Is the money really worth that much? to have to be looking over your shoulder every single moment. And some of them say yes, you know, just because they're being obnoxious, they know it's not. And some of them go, yeah, you're right. Now, some of them you can just tell that, you know, they're being sarcastic and obnoxious and they're going, yeah, it's worth it. Okay, well fine, we'll see you back in prison in a few years. Because you will get caught, you know, you will get caught, we'll see you back here sooner or later. Enjoy, enjoy your two or three years that you're, you know, you're out and having, having your fun, but you will be back. You know, but this is the idea. If we have our focus on God, we may look like a fool to the world because we're not enjoying what the world says is, is good. 
but we're not having to look over our shoulder or wait for judgment from God. Okay, waiting for the consequences to fall because we inherently know there's consequences. We like to act like there are no consequences when we sin, but inherently we know that there are consequences for doing wrong. And here it says the stability comes from being obedient and fearing God and doing what he asks us to do. And this is important for us to keep that in mind, the fear of the Lord. And it says the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Behold, their valiant ones shall cry without. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lay waste. The wayfaring men cease. He has broken the covenant. He hath broken the covenant, and he has despised the cities. He regards no man. And in this particular one, we're not really sure which one they're talking about. I think the predecessor, the precedent on here is God. God has taken and struck down, down the valiant ones. But it also fit for Sennacherib. And I, I saw a couple places that said it was, they believe it's Sennacherib because he was that way. He won so many battles and he did not pay attention to the ambassadors. But I really think this is God. God says, I'm going to be victorious. The valiant ones will cry out. You know, they, will, they will leave in fear. And ambassadors of peace shall weep, weep bitterly. How many people, when they are wrong, try to bargain with God. God, if you just get me out of this trouble, I will do. Weeping bitterly, God, I got caught, I'm in trouble. I will do whatever it takes to get out of this trouble at this time. And basically, God laughs at them at that point, unless they're truly repentant. Now, there are people that get truly repentant and say, yes, God, I'm willing to do anything. David was that way when Bathsheba, when his and Bathsheba's son was struck struck with the disease and was going to die, David was on his face weeping, hoping for the son to be saved. And then he got back up. Even before that, Nathan came to him and said, you know, gave him the story of David, you know, this man stole this man's sheep and, and David got angry and then he just said, okay, yeah, you're right, it was me. And he repented. God gave him great consequences for his sin, but allowed him to not lose his life, which was the punishment for murder and adultery. David had committed two capital offenses in the same very short period of time. And God said, okay, I accept your, I accept your repentance. I'm not going to have you executed, but you're going to have these problems. And we'll get to that later on. And we'll cover those when we're in 2 Samuel. But he had several consequences for his sin that affected the people. And again, we've talked about this so often. Sin has consequences. The consequences are more than we want them to be, and they affect more people than we expect them to affect. Always. And that's the problem with sin. Because you know, a lot of times people, well, you know, I, I, I know what's going to happen, and I can take the, the consequences. I like alcohol because that's when somebody, well, I can go get drunk, and I'll just have the hangover tomorrow. I'll have the headache, and I'll feel miserable, and I'll, I'm willing to put up with it. Well, unfortunately, that's usually not the only consequence there is for that. You know, if you really have a bad one, you get in behind the wheel and you end up hurting somebody or killing somebody. You are setting a bad example for family members or friends that say, well, they can do it, I can do it. All kinds of consequences that flow out of this that we don't even sometimes comprehend. And all sins have those consequences that we don't even really understand. Because as I've said, somebody's always watching us. You know, whether it's our own family or friends or coworkers or neighbors, people are always watching us to see what are we doing. 
Sin has consequences. And it says the highways lie waste, the wayfaring men cease, the, the robbers, <laughs> the wayfarers, the robbers waiting to rob people on the highway. And he has broken covenant and he has despised the cities, he regardeth no man. And this is why many people believe it's Sinrach Reb, because he broke treaties with people all the time. But you know, when people have broken the covenant with God, consequences happen and people will go, well, God, you promised. He goes, yeah, but you didn't do your part of the promise. God put before the children of Israel blessing and curses. He said, if you obey me, you follow my ways, you're going to be blessed. You'll never be kicked out of the land. It's your land forever. You will never be judged. But if you disobey me, you don't keep my commandments. And he told them they would have famine and troubles and be kicked out of the land. And that's exactly what, they hap what happened to them. Now, some of the things that God gives us are unconditional. When we become a Christian, it's an unconditional gift. We are a Christian. As long as it is a true, true repentance, a true acceptance of him, a true belief, we are going to heaven. And I've had people, well, what about these people who turn their back on God and go into full-blown full saying, well, probably they never truly believed on him in the first place. Because what is belief? It's putting all my trust into something. Not just, well, I believe he lived. You know, anybody who studied history knows that Jesus lived. It's not a question of did he live. It's, it is a historical fact that he lived. Now, was he the son of God? That's a harder thing to prove. We have to take that by faith. And the proof of the Bible and the, even the non-biblical things, say, you know, they will say he was a magician, did great things, healed people. They, they, they assign it to being a magician. All right? So it's clear that he did miracles of some sort. So the question is, were they God's miracles, which I agree that they were, because the things that he's attributed with could not be anything but a godly miracle. But we see this over and over. Who is Jesus? Do I just believe that he was in existence? In James, he says, you believe in God, you do well. The devils believe. They're not going to heaven. They believe because they know for a fact that there is a God, and they know that for a fact that Jesus is the Son of God. They have no problem with all of that. They know that. But it is not a, ba a belief that says, I'm going to put my trust in. And that's what we are as Christians. We put our trust in God completely. And as I've explained, it's, it's like if you're doing the repelling, and you know, at some point you're repelling down a cliff, you have to put your whole faith and trust in that rope. And when I was 300 pounds and that little skinny rope was there, it was a little, little nerve-wracking. They, they, they told me that rope could hold 500 pounds. I'm going, it better. We sit down with all these things and go, God, what is it you want? I want to put my full trust in you. The truth never, never loses. Uh, the earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is ashamed and hewn down. Sharon is like a wilderness. Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. In other words, they've been spoiled. Right, the ground is mourning because it has been destroyed. And oftentimes in those, in those days, after they would conquer somebody, if they weren't planning to live in their area, oftentimes they would salt, the, salt their fields. And apparently if you put enough salt on a field, nothing grows for years. I don't know, I've never tried to salt anything, but apparently it's supposed to work. Uh, I don't know how much salt it takes to do that. <laughs> but they would, they would make their fields totally unusable. And, and ruin them. And so the land is mourning. Lebanon is ashamed. And Lebanon had the woods of Lebanon, and it says they've, they've cut them down. Sharon 
is a would be a wilderness, and it was known for its flowers and fruits even to this day. Uh, Bashan and Carmel were very fruitful, fruitful places, and he says the enemy is coming through there and destroying this. Um, God also has done that to them at various times in their judgment. He's caused droughts and, and famine to come their way and said, these places aren't going to grow. And if God steps up against you, you're in trouble. Um, verse 10. Now will I arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. You shall conceive shaft. You shall bring forth stubble. Your, your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be on the burnings of, of time. As thorns cut up, they shall be burned in the fires. All right, so here God is telling Shennacherib, I'm going to stand. It's an amazing thing when we look at these stories and see God stand. We read the different biographies and we see God step forward. Just usually it ends up when the enemy thinks that we're defeated. God steps in. Yeah. And I love it at various places that, that actually will say, but God. <laughs> but God had another plan. But God did something. You know, and it here it says, now will I arise, says the Lord. I will be exalted. I will lift myself up. God steps off the throne and stands on the th up on the throne and says, I'm now moving. David so often would lament, you know, God, why does it seem like the... the unrighteous are being blessed. Why does it seem like everything's going good for them and nothing's going for good for me? And each one of those times when David would say that, he'd come to that very end, but God came into the picture. But God stepped forward. God says, I'm going to lift up. I'm going to stand up. He says, you know, Sennacherib, you, you shall conceive shaft. You shall bring forth stubble. Your, your breath as fire shall devour you. In other words, you thought you were going to take this, this precious land that I've blessed, you're not going to get anything. You're going to get stubble. You're not going to get any reward. You're not going to get any spoil. So Necharib was stopped in his tracks. After this, he went back, after this battle with Hezekiah, where the battle of the angel killed his men, he went back home and he was killed in the temple of his God. Yeah, didn't, live, didn't live much longer. Uh, we see them saying, you're, you're not going to get anything. You thought you were going to get something, and you're not going to make it. And this is the great thing. When we watch people, and we sit back, and we watch how God deals with our problems, I've seen this happen, where people thinking they were going to get something ended up with nothing, and lost, and usually lost what they had. And it's, it's sad, it's hard, it's, it's heartbreaking if you care about people. It's heartbreaking to see sometimes what, what happens when God moves, and how much devastation he brings. Snekreb loses his entire, the entire army and his life. And that's not unusual for God to move in just those ways, to bring such a force on here uh, that they are a great burden. Verse 13, hear you that are far off what I have done, and you, shall, and you that are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burning? He that walks uprightly and speaks uprightly, he that despises the gain of oppressors, oppression, that shakes his hands from withholding the bribes, 
that stops his ears from hearing, hearing of blood and shuts his eyes from the seeing of evil. He shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given to him. His water shall be sure. Your eyes shall see the king in his beauty, and they shall behold the land that is very far off. Your heart shall meditate, shall meditate terror. Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counts the towers? You shall not see fierce people, the people of deeper speech than you can perceive, or the stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our Solomonites. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. There shall be a the glorious God, but there the glorious Lord shall be into the place a broad river of streams thereby shall go, wherein shall go no galley of, with oars, neither shall gallant ships pass thereby. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Your tacklings are loosed, they could not well strengthen their mast, they could not spread their sail, then is the prey of a great spoil divided, the lame take the prey, the inhabitants say, shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall, shall be forgiven their iniquity. All right, so as you look at this last section, we start drifting into the millennial kingdom. <laughs> All right, the millennial kingdom and the end, end of times. It says, hear you that are far off what I have done. And it's amazing how fast news travels. Remember when the children of Israel went into the promised land? They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. And when they get there, what's the first thing that, that uh, <coughs> Rahab says to them? We know what God has done to Egypt, how he opened the Red Sea, and how he's protected you for these 40 years. God's grace, mercy, and power went before them. And she says, the, the kings are terrified of you. you know, what happened 40 years earlier? They're getting ready to into the land 40 years earlier. They definitely would have heard the news of Egypt then, and they were afraid of the people. And even back then, I'm sure the people were terrified. Rahab tells them that they were terrified. They get to go in very boldly because they know these people are afraid. Do you realize that even though people speak very aggressively against God, very negligibly against God, they fear him? If nothing else, they fear that there might be a God. I've got a couple of people that I talk to at the prison that are employee, uh, employees there, and one of them is very adamant that there is no God. I think that he doesn't believe it. <laughs> he wants there to be no God. He's hoping that there is no God. But you can tell that it's starting to get to him because everything he throws out, I can give him an answer for. So he's always start, he's starting to wonder, is there? The world is always, is there a God? What if there is a God? Even if they don't want to believe there is a God, they're, they're, well, what if? And we can help them along. What if what I'm saying is true? Well, you know, and they'll, they'll have, well, what if you're wrong? I have no problem. If I'm wrong, I've lived a great life. I've missed out on nothing. But because I've lived such a great life, I know that God is true. What if you're wrong? You know, what have you missed out? I don't be in your shoes.
Not even you're not even happy in this life, much less what you're going to face in eternity. And there's something that is very acknowledging here that we acknowledge that this things. He says, the sinners of, of Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. And this goes into just what I was saying. Even though they're a sinner, they know there's a God. And they're going to have fear. You know, why do people ever want to come to God? It's because they, they have this nagging doubt in their mind. Something is wrong. Something is happening. Something will happen. And he says they will acknowledge him. He says, and the surprise of the, of the hypocrites or they're seized for being a hypocrite. And if you've ever found yourself in a place where you're, you're acting or feeling like a hypocrite, it's a big deal. Uh, when I walked away from God for those two years, it's kind of funny because I, I think I gave more testimonies at that time than, than I had in other times, but I think it's more that I felt such like a, so, so much like a hypocrite. I'm telling them they need God, they need to get to church, they need to read the Bible, and I hadn't done any of those things for two years. I, I don't think I witnessed, you know, sometimes I think I did, but I don't think I really witnessed more. I was just struck in my heart when I did, because it's like, probably even less, but you know, I was so struck in my heart when I would, because I knew that I was not speaking what I was living. And God will come in and he'll say, you're my people, you're going to know. And this is why I say, if we can sin as a Christian without having any conviction in our heart, any knowledge that what we're doing is wrong, we're probably not saved. Now, that doesn't mean forever. I mean, there's times when we're in the midst of our sins where we're not feeling the guilt. But if we don't come to the end of a period of time, a very short time, and feeling the conviction of God that we have done wrong, then we're probably not his child and one of his children to be convicted of. And we need to really take consideration on that. When I do wrong, I know that I've done wrong. It may not be right that same exact second while I'm doing it, but very quickly thereafter, I will know that I have done wrong and I'll be convicted that I need to go to repentance. And that is going to be true of anybody who's truly God's child. He's going to come in with the Holy Spirit and saying, okay, you didn't do right. It's time to come back you to conviction. So much more now. <laughs> it becomes just, you, you do know it. Yeah. And, it. and it's hard sometimes. And usually it comes, if you're really walking close to him, if you started your day right with him, it comes even before you sin, that I shouldn't be doing this. And that's when it's really bad, is when you, go, when you still do it knowing that you shouldn't. But you know, God is still going to forgive us. When we come back to him, we confess our sins. He brings us back into fellowship. He cleanses it. There'll be consequences for it, but he cleanses the sin and we have fellowship with him. And it says, he that walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he that spises the gain of oppressors, shall shake, that shakes his hand from holding the bribes, that stops his ear from hearing of blood, and, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. To be blessed, we walk in righteousness, we speak uprightly, we speak the right things. When somebody's trying to drag you into gossip, you go, no, I don't want to hear this. Or one of my favorite things is, let's go talk to the person you want to talk about and you can say whatever you want in front of them. Nobody's ever taken me up on that offer. I just don't understand it. You know, uh, but it stops gossip. I don't go get in gossip circles very often because people know that I want to stop it quickly. Uh, do I find myself in it every once in a while? We all do. We're human. You know, you, somebody talking about something before we realize what's being talked about, we're in the middle of it. Uh, he that walks up, who despises gain from oppression, who's not taking advantage of people, 
who shakes hands from, withhold, with, from holding of bribes. He pulls back his hand, in other words. He's lifting up his hands. He's not going to take the bribes. Not even going to consider. He just lifts up his hands and says, nope, not going to do this. And stops his ear from hearing of blood, not listening to the negativity. We would do so much better if we would just stop listening to so much of what we listen to. And that includes the music we listen to, the, the, the shows we watch, and all the things that we watch that are so full of negative and fills our minds with it, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Again, the same thing. I'm not going to look. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust upon a, a maiden. And he, over and over again, he says, I'm watching what I'm doing. I'm not going to go down that road. Because the problem is when we start down one of those roads, our flesh enjoys it for a short period of time until the consequences come. But, you know, if sin did not have pleasurable activity in it, we wouldn't do any sin. It's just that way. If we immediately felt the condemnation for our sin that we're going to feel later, we wouldn't sin in the first place. As I've said, for those of us who like to overeat, you know, if we had the consequences of our overeating happen the minute we put something in our mouth, we wouldn't be eating, overeating very long. You know, if we all of a sudden put a patch of fat on, our, on our, our thigh or our stomach or our arm, we would very quickly say, no, I'm not going to overeat anymore. But unfortunately, sin doesn't have that immediate consequences, so we have to purpose to not participate in it. And he says, they that dwell on high, place of defense shall be the munitions of the rocks or the fortress of the rocks. Bread shall be given to him, and his water shall be sure. God says he's going to protect us. When he's our defense, he's going to feed us. He's going to give us water. He's going to take care of us and say, I'm protecting you. And I love this because, you know, I've heard it said, you know, when Satan comes knocking on the door of your heart, go let Jesus answer it. You know, don't go try to defeat Satan. You know, so many, especially in the Pentecostal circles, will talk, well, you just tell Satan where to go. I'm not going to tell Satan anything. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit and, and, and Jesus take care of talking to him because he will outmaneuver me in a heartbeat. He's more intelligent. He's been living a lot longer than I've lived, and he will take advantage of me if I try to, to do it. Don't try to, don't try to defeat feed him. Let God be your defense. And don't buy into this, go tell Satan to go do anything. Jesus got away with it. When he talked to Legion, he got away with it because he was the son of God. And their very first question is, what are you going to do to us? Don't send us to the abyss. And he says, go, and they begged to go in the, in the flock of pigs. And he says, okay. Uh, but we don't want to be talking to him. He'll take advantage of us at any moment. Your eyes shall see the king in his beauty and shall behold the land that is very far off. And I believe this is talking about Jesus in his glorified position. We will see him high and lifted up, as Isaiah 6 said. It says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And his, and his angels sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. You know, and this one, I believe that this was a very personal one for Isaiah, because he had seen the Lord high and lifted up. And he says, the rest of the world's going to see him. I look forward to the day when I stand before God and get to see him in his glory high and lifted up. It says, Your heart shall, shall meditate terror. Where are the scribes and the receivers? Where is he that counts the towers? They shall not see a fierce people, the people of a deeper speech than, that they cannot perceive, or stammering tongue that, that they cannot understand. In other words, he says, where are the people you're afraid of? 
Where are the people that you're afraid of? You know, in, in Hezekiah's day, God killed them all. They spoke a language that was un, wasn't understandable to the people, and he killed them all. In the millennial kingdom, there won't be anybody to be that way. You know, there won't be any of this. And God says, I will protect. I will keep. He says in verse 20, look upon Zion, the city of our Solomonties, which means their appointed feast days. That's where they went to celebrate uh, God and have their festivals and their sacrifices. The quiet, a quiet habitation, the tabernacle shall not be taken down, nor one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed. There shall no cord be broken, which means we know we're talking about the millennial kingdom or even the new heaven and new earth because the Jerusalem that was there at that time was going to be destroyed. And then the Jerusalem in 70 AD was destroyed. And so we know that it has to be either the millennial kingdom, but that has an end. So I really do believe that he's talking now about the new heaven and new earth where the Jerusalem comes down from, from heaven. And remember, it's just a small place, uh, 1,500 square miles, <laughs> just, a, just a small city. Uh, and that one will never be destroyed, never shaken, not even an enemy to shake it. And it says, but there the glory of the Lord will be in the place, broad rivers and streams, and no battleships will be on it, no galleys, no, no, uh, no gallant ships, no, no, no troubles. When God gets the new heaven and new earth, there won't be any trials, no troubles, no enemies. It's hard to even fathom that. <laughs> no enemy at all to have to worry about. A place of peace, no fear, no light, no sun, no moon, or all light, no sun, no moon, no stars, just God providing light. And no, no, no shadows. You know, how that'll work, I don't know. God will provide all the light, no shadows. No uh, electric bill. No electric bill. <laughs> yeah, no gas bill, electric bill. Perfection. And it says, in this verse 22, is the verse that our founding fathers built our government around. They took this verse to build our government on. It says, for the Lord is our judge. They made the judicial branch from that. The Lord is our lawgiver. They give the Congress. And the Lord is our king, the executive branch. And they used this verse for this. And he will save us. Now, they knew that God could be all of these three things in one. But God is perfect. He is the perfect benevolent being to rule over us. He is not going to take advantage of us. Our founding fathers knew that human beings are evil in their heart, will always try to take advantage of others. So they separated him and said, here's three distinct groups of gov in our government, and they shall not, and they shall have separate powers and equal powers. We're trying to blur those lines in our day and age, and we're trying to ruin our, our government that should stand the case if they would just not blur the lines. Um, but they built our government upon this principle. And they, they, they were very clear on it, that this is where they came from, it, that it came from. And it says, their tacklings are loosed, and they do well, and could not well strengthen their mast, and they could not spread their sail, their, and then is their prey of, of a great spoil divided, and the lame shall take the spoil. Tacklings, all the tackling of the ships. They could not get the sails up. They could not, they could not be able to strengthen. He goes, they couldn't spread the sail. And it says the great spoil that they thought they were going to get. I love 
the lame shall take their take. You know, we, when we think about this, God, and this goes back to what I keep saying, God does the work and he gives us the spoil. I love it. I love that God does this. And he says, you know, the world thinks they're getting everything. You know, our multi-billionaires out there think they're getting everything. The, the wealthy corporation CEO, CEO thinks they're getting everything. They're getting lots of power. The person who gets their fame and status thinks they're getting everything. And it's not satisfying. It doesn't, it doesn't last. And if nothing else, as Solomon said in, in Ecclesiastes, what good is it anyway? Because all I'm going to do is give it to my child. You know, somebody else is going to get it. And I don't know if they're going to be wise enough to keep it. You know, how many people live in the fame of their father or their mother? You know, my, my dad was a real famous football player. And they get some fame from that. You know, my mom was the, the great singer so-and-so. And they get a little fame from it. But a lot of people look at them, well, so what? Who are you? But a lot of people say, oh, well, yeah, you're, 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 you're famous in the shadow. They don't deserve it. They, don't, they didn't earn it. And eventually, they're going to lose it anyway. And this is just what happens. God turns over what belongs to the, to the wicked and turns it over to his children because it all belongs to him in the first place. God allows us to use his stuff. And we've got to recognize that. We are stewards, the Bible tells us, of his stuff. And if you're a good steward, God gives you more responsibility with his stuff. If you're a bad steward with his stuff, he gives you less responsibility with his stuff. And he's going to go, what will you allow? There have been a lot of very, very wealthy Christians who have used God's stuff to build up missions and churches and everything, and God just pours out more on them. There are people who say, well, you know, and I've heard it, well, if I just had that, I would give. Well, if you're not giving when you have very little, you aren't going to give when you have, if you have much. You're going to be just as selfish. You're going to be just as stingy. Maybe, you're, maybe your little might be a little bit more, but you're not going to give much more. If you're tithing or giving offerings, you know, when you're, when you're poor, you will give and offerings and tithes when you are wealthy, if you are wealthy. And it's a direct proportion. If you're stingy before, you're going to be stingy afterwards. Because all that happens when you start making more money is your expenses go up. Always. It always happens. You get a bigger house, you get a nicer car, you get nicer stuff. And, it's, and God's saying that's not a bad thing. You know, he's not saying you can't get a nicer house if you have the money to afford it, but don't forget God. He's not saying you can't drive a nice car, but you probably don't need the Lamborg you know, Lamborghini or the Viper. Uh, as nice as fun as those would probably be, you, know, you probably don't need one of those cars. Now, if you're rich enough and can afford it and still honor God, be my guest. But God is saying very much on here, take, he's going to give us. And in, the, and in the very last verse, and the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven of their iniquities. This is why I definitely know that this is at least talking about the millennial kingdom and most likely the new heaven and new earth. Because no sickness, no diseases, no pain, no sorrow, no tears, at least no tears of, of sorrow. <laughs> Uh, and God has this blessing for us in the long run. God has good plans for us. And all we have to trust is trust in those. 
Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we thank you that you do have good plans for us and that you care for us and that you are our defense. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.